Greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Friends and happy Thanksgiving. Yes, ish, right? Because who knows when they're who knows when they're going to listen to this? But who knows? Hi, everybody. Uh, We have made it through spooky season and the revenge of the Hannigans to come back at you uh, with something themed for America. But before we get into it, Christina, what have you been listening to this week? Well, I stayed in theme and I listened to Pippin. Yes, that's very in theme. So Pippin. Have you um, ever seen Pippin? I actually haven't. And listen, I mean, I know a lot of the music and magic to do, of course, you know, and it wasn't until I was like listening to it as a score that I realized I didn't actually know what the show was about. Okay. Because I'd never watched it. Right. Uh, so I went and looked up the synopsis and read through some, you know, insight on it. And it, it's a really smart, interesting expression of the inner turmoil that is being human. And I never really put that together with that show. I think that Stephen Schwartz has a really interesting way of talking about the human condition and human relationships. Right. Um, And that really comes out in a very existential way in Pippin. Again, not something I expected from the show based on like just knowing some of the music. Um, And it's really, I find it really, really fascinating and really interesting. And now I want... I want to go see it. I want to like be able to see it on stage and see how it all turns out, you know? Pippin is... When I was in high school, I saw a high school production of it. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. At some point, they had filmed not the Broadway production, but I think like the national tour mm. uh, with Ben Vereen and William Catt and um, uh, Cheetah Rivera. And oh, so I'd okay. seen that. And, and so it was Bob Fosse staging for the most part. Uh, and I was epic. like, this is, this is really interesting. Yeah. And... Um, then the revival happened while I was living in New York, and it's something that I saw multiple times. Yeah. And what was so fascinating about that revival is, you know, when you do a show that's iconically attached to a director like Bob Fosse. Right. How do you break that cycle? But I thought the, the Diane Paulus revival worked brilliantly. I think a lot of mm. people enjoyed it. So I think it finally showed, you know, something like Pippin doesn't have to be um, married to Fosse, you know? Totally. Um, I also, something I really appreciated about just listening to it was how much of an actor John Rubenstein is. And first and foremost, an actor. Yeah. And he he actually spoke at both my graduations from AMDA. He did. <laughs> he absolutely did. I really enjoyed just listening to him tell a story. Okay. Because um, that's really what he's doing in a lot of these songs because he's playing a role. And so it's it's a bit it's a bit like reading from a storybook sometimes. And like, that's the intention, right? Um, But he just has such a wonderful way of telling a story. And so it's fun. I actually got to see him do uh, the Charlie and Chocolate Factory on Broadway where he plays the grandpa. And I, I mean, anytime he was on stage, I was like, this is the best show I've ever seen. (laughs) Wait, John Rubenstein played grandpa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? He was so fun. He was really fun. I didn't see that production. I missed it. He was literally living his best life. He was just so excited. So excited (laughs) to be a kid. It was was so much fun to watch. And it made, you know, now listening to Pippa, I'm like, wow, he must have just had the time of his life doing this show. But anyways, that's what I listened to. What have you been listening to, Bobby? I went on theme in a different direction, Uh but I I love that we stay on theme. So I was like, you know, this is our Thanksgiving episode and there's really only one musical theater song that's in like the Thanksgiving theme. And of course it's Turkey Lurkey time, but Ah! I have never, and this is so bad to say publicly, I have never like been moved to listen to Promises Promises. Really? And And I don't have anything against the show. And I actually really like Burt Baccarat songs, but yeah. I've never been moved to do it. And so when I was going to prepare for this episode, I was like, well, am I going to listen to Promises Promises? And I'm like, no, I'm not. Uh, 
So I went and watched the movie Camp instead. Uh So, no, and I was up in the mountains doing Fiddler on the Roof and Camp was a big thing. But in in the movie, when they perform the song... It becomes a weird montage of like the other kids doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and the girl who's playing Carlotta and Follies is singing I'm Still Here over them doing the jingle bells, jingle bells. And I'm and I'm doing the hands. You are. Right? You're doing the hands. Yes. But so for all the people who can't see. So I'm like, so you got Thanksgiving. Fiddler kind of ties into tonight's episode. And the original songs uh, to the movie were written by Michael Gore and Lynn Ahrens. And Lynn Aaron's kind of ties into tonight's episode. A little bit. A little bit. So I was like, this is the perfect one to do. I think we should just get in these clues. I'm excited Let's to talk about this show. It's going to be fun. Uh, all right. So our first clue, which was at the end of the last episode, was this musical picked up more Tony nominations than it had actual performances. Which was followed by our Twitter clue, which was a set of song lyrics that goes like this out of the noise and the dreams and the sweat ain't it a wonder what music we get priceless and just a penny a tune very nice well done bobby and uh our instagram clue was a picture of nyu's campus in greenwich village which was followed by our blog clue which i posted on facebook which was five musical flops with books by Joseph Stein. And the final clue, which you're hearing right now. This musical began its life as a sequel to Fiddler on the Roof. Okay, I think they must have got it at this point. I hope so. All right, drum roll, please. (gasps) (laughs) Rags! Okay, so Rags... Uh, was music by Charles Strauss, lyrics only by Stephen Schwartz. That's crazy. Yep. Um, book by Joseph Stein, who, here's the Fiddler tie-in, wrote Fiddler. Yes. Ta-da! He wrote, he wrote the first one, and this was supposed to be the, the second one. Yes. And also revisions, which we're going to be talking about later, were by David Thompson. Just right. putting that here now. Which has revised several of the shows we've talked about this season on My Favorite Flops. That's really a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't connected that till just now. He's a thing for flops. <laughs> he does. We should call him and see if he's a flopaholic. Make sure he joins the meetings. He's a flop doctor. <laughs> anyway, Christina, why don't you give them the plot of this show uh, so then we can jump in, right? Here we go. Rags the Musical tells the story of a Russian immigrant, Rebecca, who, with her son David, travels to America in 1910 in search of a better life. What they find when they arrive is a country that is not the promised land they expected. Nevertheless, with opportunities abound, a community of immigrants comes together as they look towards a new future on the horizon. And Rebecca must decide what matters more to her, staying true to her roots or adopting a new cultural identity in an attempt to fit in. So this musical at face value, we were talking a little bit about this briefly earlier today. It means a lot to me because most of my family came through Ellis Island. And Mm. it's a story that I feel like isn't told often. You know, we, we talk about immigrants more in the present tense. And it's important to do that because these are the people who are actively dealing with the adversity and the uh, just some of the the awful stuff his country has history with when it comes to immigrants. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the whole Ellis Island story is such an important piece of the American patchwork, you know, of, of mm-hmm. these four people from Ireland and Italy and Eastern Europe who were basically brought here to be cheap labor uh, across the country in sweatshops and on the railroads and things like that. You know, we get movies that are awesome, like the gangs of New York sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, that tell this story. But it's not it's not something that gets as much focus as like the Civil War or the <laughs> Pilgrims or do you know what I mean? I, yeah. Maybe I just feel that way. I don't know. I, I don't think it's something that's a common like focal point. It's not. I mean, it's certainly something we all learn about right in history. Um, but I it. It's ripe for the picking when it comes to the creative mediums. Right. 
Um, there's a lot of different stories. I mean, there's still discovering stories to, that were documented then, you know, and and there's so much to mine there. Sure. There's so much drama to mine there. Um, so it makes complete sense that you that they would want to create a musical based on that. And it does seem like the natural progression from Fiddler on the Roof, right? Right. Um, and it's... It was interesting before I learned that that was the case when I was listening to the the original Broadway soundtrack. I was like, "This has a lot of fiddler about it. This, this feels like fiddler." Did you really feel that way? <laughs> yeah, I did. And, I, <laughs> and then I was like, "Oh, that makes sense. There it is." Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I legitimately, I think the original goal was to write a film musical sequel to Fiddler about Tevia and the girls coming to America. And that's that's the groundwork of what Rags was meant to be. And I think as we go through it, I think that still plagues it to this day because even as you delete characters and rewrite characters and things like that, that basic heart of the show still persists. So the Broadway production was in 1986. Let's talk about the creation. Yeah, so at some point, Charles Strauss and Stephen Schwartz get get involved and there's a collective decision to not focus on the male character, the father, which has now been renamed Avram. It's no longer Tevya, you mm-hmm. know, um, and Avram is still in the show to this day, uh, yes. I believe. And um, they're like, we want to focus on a female story, which I think was one of the coolest things they did from the very beginning is Agreed. let's create this Rebecca character and focus on her story because you even in ragtime which is based on a very famous novel so people would have known ragtime when this was on broadway you know mm-hmm. uh tate it's it's tate's story you know um the mother isn't present it's tate and his daughter uh it's a very male driven the jewish immigrant so for this mother this woman who has a child searching for a husband that we don't i think that's really cool to decide to make that the focal point. And I think that that was on paper a really strong story to tell. So the idea in the original Broadway production was that she was coming to the States to find her husband who had left them a couple years prior in search of trying to get them a better life and bring them out. And they don't hear from him for a couple of years. So she takes the onus on herself to show up, right? And and that's the story of so many immigrants who came through. I mean, my great-grandpa from Italy came several years before my great-grandma did, you know? Left her in Italy. She had no idea if he was ever coming back to get her. Exactly, and that's scary. I mean, it was a scary time. Frightening. It's very frightening. And so Nathan, her husband, who she's coming to find, gets very involved in the new American dream. He gets very involved with the Democrats, who at the time were non-union, were four different things than the unionizers. He like changes his name so it sounds more American and less ethnic. He like loses his accent. They make a point of that, talking about that in the show, you know, when she finds him. But all the while, she's gotten a job in a sweatshop and the union leader, Sal, has now kind of falling in love with her, but also trying to convince her of the union is the strongest way, right? And so it then evolves into this weird political thing as a storyline and gets really muddled. And yes, it's it's historically accurate. I just felt like it was, I was like, but what story are we trying to tell? And then you have the B storyline, which is his daughter, Bella, is like the B storyline. And she's like the optimistic one and like is excited to be there. And she like falls in love with this young quirky kid who's supposed to have money, but he doesn't. And so then she like gets all disenfranchised with everything very quickly. And you follow the storyline and spoiler alert, she dies in the factory fire and everyone's brokenhearted. And it's like this big inciting incident that then leads to everybody kind of figuring out who they are. Right. Right. But to me, in so many ways, Bella is the story I want to follow, especially because they give the rags, the title song to Judy Kuhn, who played Bella. So it just gets a bit muddled. Like they're they're trying to tell too much. Well, and that's where I think I think a lot of people love ragtime. And we're gonna reference it a couple times on this. So I apologize. This is not an episode about ragtime. <laughs> ragtime, I think, succeeds both as a novel and as a musical by it's almost like the wicked of American history because 
It's the other characters who it's the characters we focus on are the people who are also involved with Booker T. Washington and Evelyn Nesbitt and Henry Ford and all of these epic things in American history. They all happen during the course of ragtime. The only real big one other than the immigration movement in on Ellis Island in 1910 is the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire that mm-hmm. Bella passes in, which is one of the most important events when it came to workers' rights in the U.S., but it's not it's not our main character, you know? Exactly. And that was where I, I just, it, it felt a little strange. And like they went for the jugular of the political side of it. Right. Um, and trying to tell both sides of that story. And if that's what the story is that you want to tell, then stick with that, right? But then they were trying to add in this love story between Rebecca and Sal and like this love triangle that was happening within it. And look, that works great in an ABC drama, right? Right. <laughs> like a Shonda Rhimes thing. And that is totally something that I think would work if you were doing a series. But when you only have two hours on stage, you only have so much time to deal with things. Yeah. No. And and yeah, it just a lot of it feels so surface too. you know, it's like Rebecca gets there. Uh, she sings about her con- like it just the everything just kind of happens. And you're like, OK, I'm watching these things happen and take place. And then I really don't know what the resolution is at the end of the story. And maybe because it's a product of its time. But I was I was reading a lot of Stephen Schwartz's comments on the show. He has actually spoken and written a lot about rags because the failure of this almost prompted him to leave the theater forever. And he did for a long stretch of time. Um, So when he prepared to do this, he went to Ellis Island. Ellis Island hadn't been renovated and made a museum for the public to visit yet. It was literally an abandoned, condemned building. And so that's so weird to think because I used to work there. I used to give tours of it. So to think of that not being something that Americans could readily visit to look up their ancestry, because you have to think the 80s are only 70 years away from this. There are characters in this show that could feasibly be alive when this musical was written. Mm-hmm. And um, But what is so unique about these people specifically, the Ellis Island generation, is just like Nathan's character, so many of them, whether it was right away or within a decade or two, assimilated because they had to. And part of that was giving up the language and giving up the cultural customs to Americanize yourself and your families that even one or two generations down, people don't know where their relatives even immigrated from, you know? And so that I think makes the ending interesting because there is no, there is no resolution. And I don't know if anyone was ready to say because can you imagine that ending? Like at the end, Rebecca just totally assimilates into American life. Right. Like, I mean, and they set up both sides of what that looks like, I guess. It just, um, it was sad that it didn't feel like a strong choice was made. Yeah. And I felt that way about a lot of the show. There was a lot of, I'm going to give you an idea of the stereotypical archetype of a Jewish immigrant. I'm going to give you a cardboard cutout of what an Italian unionizer would look like, you know, and instead of making them 3D and fully fledged guttural characters, and that came across in the studio recording, which we will talk about, but it wasn't recorded until a few years later, not until 1991. Rags opened on Broadway in 1986. The recording is so... Um, there's no meat in the vocals. You know, it's pretty. It's pretty, but like, it doesn't feel like they... To go to my teacher side, it doesn't feel like they monologued any of the songs and like really understood what we were talking about. And right. It, it was too it was too nice. Well, and you know, part of it part of it being too nice, you know, I don't know because I don't have any demo recordings to the show or not. Yeah. I don't know if the score was composed as operatic as it ended up on Broadway. But at some point it was, and I think Charles Strauss is the one who suggested her, Teresa Stratus, a famous opera singer, was cast as Rebecca. And so, of course, everything she sings is beautiful soprano up in her high register, almost like arias. It feels so disjointed with what the musical is trying to do to me. I just... I agree. To me, character-wise, story-wise, I don't think this immigrant would have that pretty sounding of a voice. 
I feel like that, especially as she becomes politically motivated, is when you would, conceptually for me, I feel like you would start with a mix and then you would get to someone who would end up being a belter by the end of the show. Definitely. And part of that is her speaking voice. Her speaking voice is very guttural in the recording. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden she starts singing with this opera sound. And I'm just like, what happened? That's not the same person anymore. And musical theater is that it's theater. So you need to have the continuation like that's especially by 1986. We had had that change within musical theater. Right. Where it becomes about your speaking voice and your singing voice should match to a certain extent. Right. right? So that was confusing to me as a listener. And that was confusing to me as an audience member. It really felt like it became presentational when the singing would happen. And then we'd go back to that intimate scene work and then we'd be presentational again. And it just, it really, again, it just feels like a massive disconnect. Yeah. No, and I think that that kind of sums up what they ended up with on Broadway. You know, and the show, even by the time it opened on Broadway, I don't even know if it's guaranteed that two performances in New York were the same. This seems Mm. like a show that was rewritten on a nightly basis. Oh, Um, yeah. Which we should talk about how we got there. So they started in Boston in their out of town tryout. And they had been working for like the six months of creation and doing workshops and all that kind of stuff with one director, which was Joan Micklin Silver. She was with it, but she was a playwright. This was her first time directing. And according to the producer, Mr. Goober, I just love that his name is Mr. Goober. Yeah. <laughs> I have to call it out. He said she was an invaluable writer, but had no experience in the basic mechanics of moving people back and forth on stage in a Broadway show. And it all ended in high drama. That's the quote from him. And... I can imagine. I can imagine if you have someone who doesn't even understand simple stagecraft, such as like, don't upstage each other, you know, and to correct myself, she did co-direct My Name is Alice, but I think that's different, right? You have a friend helping you along and calling out things, right? And that's an off-Broadway show that's almost like a cabaret. It's not a, a, it's not a Broadway musical epic about the immigrant experience, you know? And this show was meant to be that, like you said, an epic. And it came on the scene with things like Lamez and Starlight Express, which are massive epics. Epics. Okay, so before we get to the Broadway again, I think Joseph Stein first worked on the screenplay, sequel, whatever, in 81. So it wasn't that many years of development. Mm-mm. But they got to this Boston thing. And shockingly, the Boston run pretty much had sold out houses and standing ovations every night. It Crazy. was considered to be like, this is this is a no-brainer. People were throwing money like, I want to be involved in this because this is, this is going to be the next big thing. They need to fix a couple of things, but this is it. This and is, this was after Gene Sachs took over, right? I, I don't know if he actually fixed it in Boston. Do we know that? Well, I know he he was flown out to Boston. Okay. They fired Joan only a couple of nights before they were supposed to open their first preview okay. in Boston. And so they flew him out to like help. So I'm sure he had some sort of hand in probably why every night felt like a different show. Because I definitely think that I read that Stephen Schwartz attempted to direct it at one point, which, you know, that's that Steinman thing all over again. Mm. Uh, yeah. I mean, when you're backed into a corner, you make a choice. Um, yeah. Um, and also, we should mention that they tried to get Jerome Robbins to do it because he had so much success with Fiddler, but he <laughs> he declined. But in that's what Rags needed. It needed a visionary to help the mm-hmm. creative team. It really needed someone, and I think someone like a Robbins, to conceptually put something together because we, I think we take advantage of Fiddler on the Roof as like, oh, it's a musical comedy. Like, it's sad, you know? But um, it is truly a conceptual show. I don't think I've ever seen a production of Fiddler that doesn't have a minimalist set. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think they always do because it is it, it is an experimental piece of theater. It's one of those things we've talked about with Strauss because we've we've done a couple of Strauss shows now. This seems to be an on running theme with him, right? Where he is great at getting this idea and writing out music and you know right. creating great scores. But he needs a really 
strong hand with a pure vision to be able to get it to the finish line, right? Well, and I think that's true of a, you know, to just pause from the flop conversation, mm-hmm. I think that's true from a lot of really great uh, artists in this industry. I feel that yeah. way about Alan Menken. I feel that way about Stephen Sondheim. Like, I think sometimes they don't have the right collaborator and it doesn't matter what they put on paper or they compose. Sometimes it doesn't work, you know, if you don't have the right team. Definitely. And it, they were into two weeks of previews in Boston when they ended up firing the choreographer, Ken Rinker. And he was replaced by Ron Field, right? Yes, he was, who is of cabaret choreography fame. Yes. Just to put that in everybody's heads. And he also was fired from Merrily We Roll Along, another yes. flop. But yes, and that was all happening while Teresa Stratus, who was Rebecca, had bronchitis and could not perform. Yes. And so I had read that, that the show felt more evenly balanced in Boston because they weren't fixing it for a star. They were fixing it for a replacement. Right. And the minute she got involved with the Broadway production again, I think they all have even admitted this. They were all kind of uh, just starstruck. And catering to her. And wanting to cater to her at the misfortune of the rest of the piece, you know? Yeah, which, I mean, we talked about that with Dance of the Vampires. Sometimes that that happens and you you get too wrapped up in who your star is. And also, we should mention, because we're going to want to talk about the money stats, she was getting paid $25,000 a week. Plus 3% of... Profits. Yes, like that in 1986... That's a lot of money. In 1986, like... Uh, Look, that's a lot of money by today's standards. If someone's going to pay me that much money per week to d- be in a show, I would I would lose my mind. But nobody gets... I mean, Bette Midler and Michael Crawford get paid that much to be in a show. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Goodness. I mean, it's a lot, right? That's a lot to live up to financially. Yes. And that's just one person in a 30-person cast. Right. So they're in Boston and they're going through all of these growing pains of firing director, getting new director, firing choreographer, getting new choreographer. Star is gone, cannot perform, bringing in understudy, making it work. Right. And like you said, they were getting rave reviews. People loved it. 100%. And they were excited about it. So thankfully, that would encourage, if I were on that creative team, that would encourage me to be like, okay, let's keep going. We made oh, it yeah. through. We got through the worst of it. Now we just got to go back to New York. We got to get in rehearsals and we're going to be fine, right? Wrong. Because <laughs> they kept fussing with it, apparently, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, there seemed to be a lot of influence from the money people. Yeah. I think because it, we mentioned briefly that it was originally conceived to be a movie musical. And so I think that still having some of that movie money involved, there's this like disconnect of expectations right? on what the show could and wants to be. It, it doesn't become about the relationships anymore, which is what makes a great musical. Right. And, you know, going back to that, it was supposed to be a movie sequel to Fiddler thing. You know, one of I was reading it like a dissertation breakdown of like every draft of this show that's ever been wow. written. Okay. And Tell someone us about it. someone had gone to the New York Public Library and pulled out everything. Because fortunately, when people in our community pass, they usually donate everything to the New York Public Library. And for any listener who's never done it, I mean, you can I have gone through the Charles Strauss papers, which are fascinating. Um, but Joseph Stein in these at some point in drafts right around Boston and Broadway are these outlines. And it's like, what is Rebecca's story? And I don't know if that's drawn by the fact that they've got this opera singer star that they need to do. But I think they they constantly found themselves. We have all this other stuff going on, but we don't know what her A to B to C to D like plot is. And there are several of these where they're trying to map out Like, what exactly is her journey in the show? Mm. And how do we fix everything around it? And that, I think, is fascinating because, to me, that shows that no matter how much they made it not about Avram and Bella and his family, you kind of want Bella and her struggle to, to be, you know, like the beautiful Americans she sees in the magazines 
and Avram who wants to hold on to the old world and the Jewish traditions, that's kind of the musical you want to see. And that's not Rebecca's story. Yeah. I mean, it really does feel like it should have been switched. Yeah. It does feel that way. And we'll talk more about the revisions as we move forward. Right. One of the things I noticed about the Broadway version is the way some of these songs are structured. I kind of, this is going to be strange, but I hear like motifs of Hunchback oh, and even interesting. and even Wicked in it. Well, the, and But he didn't write the music and he has gone on record because people have called him out. They're like, come on, Children of the Wind. You wrote part of that. I mean, there I, are things in that that I'm like, I have heard this in short scores before. Well, and then the bum, bum, bum. It's totally the the introduction of shiz. Like, right? Yes. Okay. That's what I'm saying. I, I was like, that is I'm wicked. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. The other thing I noticed was Children of the Wind is like the fourth song in the show. And Sometimes. seems... Well, in the original version, in the Broadway version, and seems to be her I Want song, which doesn't really line up with the script. No, because that's her singing She Wants the American Dream. Like, I have my kids and they're very noisy and we have no problems and we're not dealing with any of this. To me, like, if that's her I Want song, to me, the musical, but it would be dark if she gets it in the end. But by getting that, she has to lose her culture and her identity. You know what right. I mean? And that's like, oh, she got everything she wanted. But to be honest, that's where I thought the show was going. That's where it should go. That's my that's my two cents. Yeah, it's kind of like they Disney fight it. Like it's it's my great Italian, my Italian great grandma who barely spoke English and loved her family a lot, but refused to let us speak Italian. That's that's rags. That's yeah. what rags should be like. Yeah, I it's really interesting. I mean, choices, right? Like everybody, yeah. you you have to decide what story you want to tell. And at the end of the day, it really felt like there was a lot of wishy-washiness about it. Yeah. And they weren't willing to go for the guts. And it was an ugly show. Did you feel that way? You mean visually? Yes. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I prefer the... Um, the set and costumes of this latest revival on the West End. Right. It has a feeling of like Scottsboro Boys and the revival of Fiddler. Okay. Um, it, it kind of has that feel and I really appreciate that. And I, as we know, I appreciate a minimalist set. <laughs> right. Well, but um, Broadway is minimalist in a strange way because like the show opens on a ship, but I wasn't sure if they were on a ship or if they were in Ellis Island. I just, I didn't, I didn't know. And it's got these stanchions that are like meant to look like all sorts of things. And the cast just move them around. I'm like, this is supposed to be a big musical epic. And all I see is an empty stage with a two-dimensional Statue of Liberty in the background. And the cast is moving like four of these stanchions. And one of what on one second, we're on a boat. Another one, I think we're on the dock of the ship. Another one, we're in Ellis Island. But there was no real sense of like where we were, you know? Which is really interesting because you put that up against things like Starlight Express and yes. Les Mis, which are in the same season on Broadway. Yes. And that is the exact opposite, right? I mean, Starlight Express, that set was insane. Oh, yes. Well, and even Les Mis is minimalist to a point with the turntable, but you are still transported with that turntable to every locale in Paris. Well, where... they had so many drops. They had so many other... And a flats and I like everything. <laughs> so it's just this show yeah. is pretty bare stage for a lot of it. And the staging and choreography were not anything to write home about. Which is strange because of the people that they had attached. You would I think know. that it would be I mean, my favorite thing about cabaret is the choreography because it's so not pretty. Right. It's not cute and it's not supposed to be, you know? I mm. And like that stays one, true to those characters. Right. One of the moments that I just, I was, I was hoping, because I had never seen the whole thing before, I was hoping would be more magical, was at the end of the title song, Rags, which thematically, and I don't think this come across, comes across on the Broadway staging, is they're in the Lower East Side where these immigrants live. And Bella runs away from Avram, her father, to 14th Street, which at the time is where the wealthy are. We've all seen Hello Dolly, you know, put on <laughs> your Sunday clothes. And so all these better dressed 
New Yorkers come out and they're dancing and she's dancing with them and she's watching them dance before she realizes she'll never be them because she's just an immigrant in rags. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I was like, I know that because I read it somewhere. Did you did you know they were transported to 14th Street at all? No. And I even went and watched the Tony performance, which they have Judy Kuhn come out and do rags. Right. And it feels like she's in her apartment with her father, who's there with her. Sure. Interjecting the entire song, especially at the end, which musically speaking, like structure wise, that didn't make any sense. And I didn't understand why he was talking to her and interrupting the song. It just didn't make any sense dramatically. No, it felt like they were in their, you know, tenement apartment. But like not even a real tenement apartment because that was like the nicest and largest tenement that I've ever seen in my life. Let's talk about that for a second because there are ways to make a large stage feel intimate, right? As much as I didn't like uh, Bullets Over Broadway, you totally got that those were poor people in New York in that house set. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And it took up most of the stage. It really did. Yeah, but how you stage, how you light it, I mean, Mm -hmm. and setting up the boundaries for the audience, you know, and there are ways to direct that and make that feel crowded and cramped. Sure. And uncomfortable. And that was definitely not in the staging. Oh, no. Which just, it, it feels like you're lying then, right? Well, like, just, just to throw it out there. So Avram and Rebecca go to live with, I think, Avram's sister and her husband. And they bring Rebecca and David to live with them. That's six people in a tenement apartment. It should be very cramped in there, which is what should fuel when the sister's husband gets mad about everyone living in his house, like which happened, I think in act two, like, yeah, but you don't feel the cramped of it. It's like, okay, cool. Like they're just hanging out in a big apartment together. So we moved from Boston now to Broadway and um, there ended up being a two week postponement for the opening because Gene Sachs wanted to tear apart the script again. But oh, to gosh. do yeah, to do that, it cost the producers one hundred and eighty six thousand dollars. Oh my! To do the postponement. Yeah. So w- when they got to opening night, where you would normally have a Sardis party, which right. cost eighty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars, right, to put on, instead they did it at the Novotel Hotel in New York, which is eight blocks north of Sardis. <laughs> Right. At least turned around to everyone and they said, if Rags is a hit, we promise we'll have a victory celebration later and they'll have it at Sardi's. Um, and that apparently some of the cast just didn't show up to the opening night party at all, including Teresa. That's not surprising. Yeah, no one knew where she went. Um, rumor has it that Stephen Schwartz hid out at an amusement park in New Jersey. <laughs> I hope it was Six Flags. <laughs> That actually is not surprising either. I, I feel like I've heard that about him before. Where you he know. pieces out to Six Flags? Not Six, not <laughs> six Flags, but uh, that sometimes he doesn't come to opening nights. I mean, especially for new musicals that you're not sure about. Yeah, yeah. it makes sense. You know, you, you, you want to do the work and then get out sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but that sucks about Teresa. I mean, it opens and... Uh, I didn't know about this party situation. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, But I do know that they were making like no money. uh, And they basically, the producers were ready to close it. And um, there was nothing left in the reserves. And so the cast staged, this was, this harkens back to Seven Brides. Oh. The cast, (laughs) these 80s shows, uh, the cast marches from theater to, to, to the TKTS booth in Times Square Talk like just getting people on the street saying, we're taking you to the window and you're buying tickets to rags. So they're just grabbing tourists off the streets to go get them to buy tickets to the show. Oh, my goodness. Apparently, the producers were so like taken back that the cast minus Teresa, because apparently she didn't show up to this as well. Oh, um, good. Great. uh, We're so like impassioned about the show that they wanted to find a way to keep it open a little bit longer. Uh, but I don't think they could raise the money in time. And Boston's usually a good indicator of like success in New York. It's not like opening in L.A. where, you know, those L.A. Yeah, theater people, <laughs> they have no idea. Um, but 
No, that's it's so crazy that this had such a, a weird opposite reaction when it finally got to Broadway. Well, and by the time that they got to Broadway, they had used up their $4.5 million that they had been given. Right. So normally you you haven't used all that money up. So that way, the first couple of weeks where it's going to be hit and miss, right. you're safe, right? And unfortunately, that wasn't how it <laughs> how it went. Two weeks earlier, before previews began uh, at the Mark Hellinger Theater... The advance sale was only two hundred thousand, and you can't run on that. No. I think that their nut was like two eighty five or something. Which again, when your leading lady is taking twenty five thousand, I mean, a week. Yes, plus three percent of the box office. Yeah, I mean, by that point, they've lost one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in a week. Yeah, it's just there's no way to sustain it. I mean, even with all of that and the fact that it closed so quickly, fast forward, like, what was it, four or five months and the Tonys are here and it got nominated for a bunch of stuff. Because people love rags. I mean, that's the thing that we haven't even really delved in big on the score on this one, but people love rags. And I think that that leads to our next part of the discussion, which is its legacy. But these Tonys, do you do you have a list of how many that it was nominated for? Because it was nominated for more than four. That was our first clue. Right? <laughs> yeah, so. no, it was it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Leading Female, Best Book, Best Score, and Best Choreography. So it's five. Okay, so one more. But that's still like, that's kind of an epic statistic. More yeah. Tony Award nominations than it actually had Well, and a, one drama desk for uh, Best Lead Female. Oh, for Teresa. Yeah, she ended up winning the drama desk. Interesting. Um, yeah, which I found interesting as well. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have called that. But yeah, I mean, again, they were up against some big, big shows that season. Again, you had Me and My Girl. Which was, I mean, Broadway was ready. So this was not me. and Broadway wanted a comedy. Yeah. And this was not that. So. Nope. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know... Lay Miz was there. So if you needed something to cry at, you just went to Lay Miz instead because right. that had just come over from across the pond. Same with Starlight Express. That's a big, massive, right. silly family show. And then you had Smile as well this year. Which we know. Which we know. Peace. Yes. Rest in peace. And there were also a lot of terrible things happening in the world at the time, like Chernobyl and the Challenger exploding. Like, and that's why people wanted to go to me and my girl. I mean, the Challenger exploding was a big deal. It was it was really impactful. It was like the, the JFK assassination of the 80s because people watched it in school live on TV because Krista McAuliffe was the first teacher in space. Yep. You don't want to s- see a sad musical after that. And so from there... There's a series of revisions that happened over the years. And like when I immediately, immediately, because they weren't willing to let it go. Fast forward to 1991, which is when they do a revision at a Jewish theater in New York and they pair it completely back. They make it only nine actors, no set. And the story was actually told from the perspective of David, the son. Interesting. Yeah. This is also, we should say that this is also when the album comes out. Yes. And which so, is more or less what was on Broadway. To a point, like, again, it's so hard to tell what was in the show what night because the bootleg that both you and I watched from previews does not match that cast recording as far right. as what's on there. But I don't think it matches this 1991 production either. I not think even it's, close. I think it's kind of a hypothetical, like, well... If we got the chance to just fix some things for Broadway, that's what this cast album is with most of the Broadway cast. Teresa Stratus famously not appearing as Rebecca and being replaced by Julia McGinnis. So, who also is very operatic, but more of a mixer than Teresa yeah. was. Yeah, but it was still, it was just too legit for me. And then in 1993, The Colony in LA puts it on and does another revision. Then 1999, this is like the next really big, significant production at the Coconut Grove Playhouse in Florida that then went to Paper Mill. 
So it was a right. co-pro. So they started in Florida and then took it to Paper Mill. And that was only a cast of 15. So they cut it in half from the Broadway production and focused the story around Rebecca and her love affair with Saul, the union organizer. And Strauss mentioned about this particular revision that the music is more impressionistic. Interesting. Yeah. And I couldn't find a recording of that. So I don't, I can't follow that up with an opinion, but yeah, I found that interesting. He talked about how he felt the Broadway show was too similar to what you and I said. It was a little too one note and was not specific enough. I found that, (laughs) I found that to be interesting. I don't think of Strauss as an impressionistic writer. That's not really his style. So I, I would be interested to hear what that revision sounded like. Right. And then in 2006, there was the star-studded concert for the World AIDS Foundation um, celebrating the 20 years since the debut of the Broadway production. And that had Carolee Carmelo, Greg Edelman, Eden Espinoza, probably a very young Eden Espinoza, Lainey Kazan, and uh, Michael Rupert. So it's it was a big cast, and that was that was just a concert version of the show. So not right. not a revisal to the actual script. Well, Joseph Stein passes away in 2010, so he has been involved in, intricately with these revisals, and I think throughout this whole process. And we're talking about the big main ones, like yeah, they have fussed with this almost every year, whether hands on. Or a director reaches out like, can I put these cut songs in? Or can I put that cut dialogue in? So there's a lot of production smaller that we're missing. But, um, you know, at some point, it's Strauss who is the one who is like, I want to fix it now. And then right. it's Stephen Schwartz who wants to fix it. Or it's <laughs> Joseph Stein who wants to fix it. Or it's some director who wants to fix it. But in 2010, we lose Joseph Stein. And that changes the project forever because he's no longer able to revise his own work. Yeah. And we get David Thompson. Yes, that's when David Thompson enters. Um, Now, in 2019 is when they start workshopping the West End revival that they want to do. Right. Um, Which, is it considered a revival when it's never been on the West End before? Uh, I don't know the rules in England, but the rules on Broadway, yes. Because that was the whole drama with them preventing Little Shop from ever winning a Tony for Best Musical. Because before that, you could have a show that had never physically been on Broadway and still be eligible, and they changed the rules strictly to prevent Little Shop from winning. So, Jerks. I know. Jerks. I Anyways. Know. um, Yeah, so in 2019, they, they start the workshops for this, and that's where David Thompson really gets involved on the revising of the script itself. And it's changed again um, to a lot of things kind of change. Um, This is when the set gets really specific. And to me, in a way, it just feels like it it goes too pristine. Okay. Like the set doesn't feel pristine, but the costumes do. And the whole, I mean, the show's called Rags, so they shouldn't look that put together. No. And they would look very put together, which is strange. I went and watched some of the B-roll from the West End production. But one of the big changes is they cut Nathan completely, which based on everything I've read, that's the first time that's happened. So husband of Rebecca cut, gone. And then they bring in a new character, which is now a part. I don't know if it's a love triangle. I couldn't quite work it out. But this new character is now like top billing, and that's Bromfman. Okay. Um, and he's supposed to be the owner of the sweatshop. So now he is, he's like the secondary male lead. And the new storyline revolves around Rebecca being torn between Bronfman and Saul, who's the union organizer. So he's stuck around. Um, but it doesn't, I can't tell if it's supposed to be a love triangle like the original storytelling was right or if it's that the sweatshop owner the new guy is like trying to convince her that he's right like i couldn't i couldn't quite work it out i hadn't there wasn't enough material for me to to figure it out no and same hot here so i can only speculate but i i imagine by removing the husband and adding this character in that position because it was always a little the whole yankee boy 
in him. I don't know. It's complicated because I feel like you need that. But well, Yankee Boy was actually originally written for David the Son. Yeah, I know. It's so bizarre. Yeah. But the whole like Nathan being assimilated thing, you know what mm. I mean? Yeah. To to get ahead. And I am speculating that the Max Bromfman character is created to empower her in a 20, you know, 17, 19, 2020 world as a woman who isn't just romantically driven, but also by finding herself and woman power. And, you know, I don't know if it's the right choice, but, you know, this idea that she is making these choices of how she is going to exist in America that aren't necessarily tied to anyone else's opinion. Yeah, well, they're their opinions, but it's not romance. You know what I mean? Right. I went and listened to the West End because they have the album out. Um, so I went and listened to that recording. Oh, I didn't listen to that. Oh, my yeah. gosh. And the first act is significantly weaker than the second act. Okay. They still struggle with that idea of um, what's the right sound for okay. Rebecca. It's It still doesn't feel completely rounded out yet like what the idea is around her musicality and they moved children of the wind to the end which i think may have been done in previous revisals and to me that's a stronger choice as like a conclusion but instead of an i want song it's moved around a lot in the show yeah in the in the west end it's now like the closing the reviewer i read from alan fitter he talks about how the characters and characterizations in the book are really cliche and that the musical is missing that something special. And okay. I would agree. It, it again just still feels two dimensional. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like they've actually gotten there. You know, I think inherently the issue is, is what not whose story are we trying to tell? Because I think it could work with any of these characters It's what story are we trying to tell? Yes, it's these immigrants from certain parts of Europe in 1910, but they can't just arrive here on a ship and just exist for a period and then we're done. You know what I mean? There's got to be character arcs and there's got to be, I don't know, and maybe this is the wrong. I just, I feel like to me, the strongest choice, whether you're going to center on Rebecca or you're going to center on Avram and, and Bella, it's these people coming here for the American dream, what are they expecting from the American dream? Mm-hmm. And how do they end up getting or not getting the American dream? You know, because yeah. I don't I don't feel like we even really see that with Rebecca at all. And Bella, sadly, I think in every version dies. She's still, yeah, she's still, her storyline seems to stay consistent, which again brings me back to my original point that I think that the story should revolve around Bella. Yeah. And I love her relationship with Ben. And I especially love my favorite songs in the show actually are his songs to her because they're acting songs. Right. And they show such a wonderful relationship between the two of them. And it's so silly. And even just listening to it, I get it. Right. Right. And that that's good musical theater. I feel like there are bits and pieces through this creative journey that the show has had where they get nuggets of that's that's what it is. Like every time they do this, it's do do Bella and Rebecca know each other on the boat. Do they have this moment? Sometimes they do where they sing the song. Like, I'm so glad to have met you at the start Mm -hmm. of the show. Like, let's I will I ever see you again? I don't know. To me, that's a fascinating musical. These two immigrant women and their different journeys. But Mm -hmm. that's not rags. That's it doesn't allow it to be that story. You know what I mean? Not to generalize, but, you know, a lot of men kind of see all female relationships as the same. Right. You know, and... Possibly, because there's a world, if you were to restructure the show that way, that the song Rags isn't of Ram and Bella, but it's it's Rebecca and Bella, and it's Rebecca And I actually think that would be really interesting. Yeah, but then is it, I hope you're happy. I hope you're happy now. Again. Like, (laughs) is it is it that then? (laughs) Like, does it become that? Because... I think that's another way you fix the show. You want to make it about these strong women that you make it about these two who find a connection at the beginning, but have very conflicting journeys and they butt heads with each other. And then 
the loss of Bella being what is truly allows the catalyst for Rebecca to be for the completion of her story. I still think that you have to pull it back. And in order for Rebecca to get what she ultimately wants, having a family living in a, in the American dream and all of that, she has to give up so much to me. That's the heart wrenching musical. You focus on the two of them, you know, Bella dies in this famous fire you know, Rebecca gets, becomes an activist, something pulls her back. She grows up, she has all her kids, you know, and her kids become just part of the regular, ordinary fabric of American society. It's, it's, she gets her dream, but also it's incredibly sad. And yeah, in the reality of so many people who experience this, you know, it's also hard for me to reconcile, you know, that idea that they wanted to make a story that was about strong women. And yet the entire story that they keep going back to is about a woman finding love. Yes. And I just don't, I don't see how that perpetuates a strong female presence. No, it would be better. And again, I go back to ragtime. It would be better if it was Emma Goldman, who is the one who convinces, uh, Rebecca to become an activist. Yeah, bring in a historical figure. Bring in bring in at least one, you know, but yeah. bring in a female. So, you know, yeah, she has this husband. Keep the setup the same. She comes to meet her husband, but then she sees her husband is not what she wants. You know what I mean? And she gets radicalized by a woman. There's no romantic thing. She stands up to Nathan, which is, it's so big because she is of the, the Jewish faith and the idea yeah. of divorcing your husband with a child and moving on. That's, huge and yeah. to choose to do that and be like no i i came for you you weren't here for me i have to navigate this my own way that's mm-hmm. a fascinating musical yeah and like, i it's one of the reasons why i was kind of sad that they cut nathan from this most recent revision yeah i would have if anything pulled back on saul yes and and amped up the stuff with nathan because you can have that push and pull where the audience isn't sure if they want them to end up together or not, you can have that conversation. Like um, make make Nathan secretly an alcoholic. Make that, you know, coming from the Jewish faith. Like you, not only are you giving up all this stuff, but you're also a piece of crap. Like yeah. make him like totally just this. Uh, he's failed. He's succeeded at the American dream by failing by every, you know, sense of what Rebecca imagined the experience to be. What's really telling about that is in the scene where they find each other. Right. He comes up to her and says, I'm looking for Rebecca. And he's talking to her. Yes. So he doesn't even recognize his wife. No. Right. That's that's an important moment. They kind of brush over it in the musical. But it's actually really well written, important moment that is very telling about these characters. And I... I'm sad that they brushed over it because I think that's where you have a moment, right? Like that's where Rebecca's like, Oh, you are not the man I married. Well, this and is like, different. Where, what do I do? Well, right? and like you could even make it even more heartbreaking because, uh, because they're Jewish, you imagine that they probably got married and had a child young. Mm-hmm. And so she's probably only in her mid twenties. But because, yeah. because she's had to live for several more years in this really hard life in Russia, you know what I mean? She probably looks older than she is. You could put that in the text, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and kind of a like slap, like slap in the back of the face. Like, you know, like I didn't rec you look, you look so much older or you look, you look different. You know what yeah, I mean? Like there are so many ways to phrase that and make uh, it and make it heartbreaking. I am not the writer, but I don't know. (laughs) All right, kids. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, man. We talked about rags. We are so fortunate to be able to cover both shows that a lot of people don't know about and then shows like rags that have a lot of impassioned fans and we wanted to give you a little bit of a Thanksgiving treat because what what goes better with turkey than Jewish immigrants on the Lower East Side? Right. I mean, if it were Christmas, we'd be eating Chinese food. So, exactly. 
All right. Well, thank you all for listening to uh, this episode. Uh, you already know where to find us, but in case you don't, in case you don't know where this is playing, uh, we're on all the podcast platforms, including the important one, Apple Podcast. Which, uh, if you're listening there now, do us a favor, kids. Please click that five star button and write us a review. Uh, it helps other awesome people like you found the show, and. Um, it also help. helps us continue to make it. Yeah, because we want to do a season two. So give us that five-star review. Also click the subscribe button because then it'll let you know when our episodes drop and you get to listen to it right away, which you, is just exciting. Like at 2 a.m., you get a little ding on Tuesdays. It's the coolest thing in the world. Well, Bobby, why don't you give them the clue? Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, the clue for episode 22, which is technically our closing number of act two, season one my favorite flop is this these eight shows have one thing in common i may have emphasized a word that is also a clue so there you go all the things all the things all right christina do you have any parting words for our listeners my husband refuses to go to moulin rouge with me i think he's just being close-minded but um hey Okay, bye. bye.